Amen. Good morning. We're in Acts chapter 7, so if you would turn, actually go to chapter 6, and we're going to read from verse 7 of chapter 6, get a running start into chapter 7. Chapter 7 is 60 verses, so I want to be going through that. So I'm just going to read the first verse of chapter 7, pray, and then we'll go through it together. So Acts chapter 6 in verse 7. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilician Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. So chapter 7, verse 1. Then the high priest said, are these things so? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we know that it's alive. It's powerful, unlike any other book. Your living word through which you speak to us. And as, Lord, the word gets a hold of our hearts, you change our lives. The Spirit of God working through the Word of God to change, to transform the people of God. We know that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so, Lord, I ask the things that I prepared, you would bless, break, anoint, and feed us this morning. We're hungry. We want to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. We want to be growing in our most holy faith. And we know, Lord, that you've given to us of your spirit and your word that we might do exactly that. So give us ears to hear. We're praying, Lord, also for anyone who is hearing this uh, in, with us today who doesn't know you. Lord, please work as you marvelously did in most of our lives here. You worked in convicting us and drawing us to yourself when we finally realized we need you, Lord. You provided all that we need that we might know you and have eternal life. We might live a life that's so so magnificently above any plane of existence apart from knowing you and having a relationship with you. So bless this word now we ask in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. amen. You can be seated. So The Power of a Whisper was a book that I was telling you about last week, Hearing God, Having the Guts to Respond by Pastor Bill Hybels. This week's prayer email, the one I'm going to send out, I'm going to ask you a question that I also got from Pastor Bill who asked his his. Uh, congregation this question. I'm going to send this out this week. If you're not getting our weekly email, just to encourage you in prayer and reading your Bibles, if you're not getting that, simply give us your email at the connection desk and we'll get you on the list and you can receive that. The question is going to be this. Describe a time when you heard a whisper from heaven and then how did you respond? Describe a time when you heard a whisper from heaven and how did you respond? So here's the, here's the question that spurred me into this title for these two studies, last week and this. What will you do with your life that will outlive you and all of your earthly accomplishments? What will you do with your life that will outlive you? So Stephen, this man that we're, we're looking at in Acts 6 and 7, he was a man whose life, he woke up one morning and he was dead that night. 
His last, he had no idea that he had one more day to live, but that's exactly what happened. His life was cut short, but his life outlived him tremendously. We're still talking about Stephen today. So last week, four factors involved that needs to be involved if our lives will indeed outlive us. So those four factors we looked at last week, the salvation factor, the unseen factor, the spirit factor, and then the faith factor. That fourth one we're looking at this morning is the faith factors in those whose lives outlive them. We're going to look at some examples in chapter 7. So there are four factors that we're going to look at this morning. Number one, it's faith in the grace of God. That's Abraham. That's verses 1 through 8 in, in chapter 7. Secondly, it's faith in the goodness of God, the life of Joseph, verses 9 through 19. Third, it's faith in the power of God to deliver. That's who? Moses. And then finally, faith in the person of Jesus Christ to save, and that's the life of Stephen. Now, along with this, as I shared last week, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, is a great sort of uh, commentary. In fact, uh, the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. So this morning... I'm going to be giving you a lot of scripture. We're going to be packing ourselves in and reading through the scriptures this morning, which I love to do. But Hebrews 11 is also a great commentary that, that goes right alongside Stephen's sermon here in chapter 7. And it's a tremendous sermon. It, it's, a, it's basically a summary, a summary of the Old Testament. So it's, it's tremendous. So would you, as you have your Bibles open, would you keep them open or your tablet? And as I'm going back and forth here, I'm not going to necessarily wait for you to get there, but I'll start reading. I'll keep reminding you what verse we're on so that I, I believe without a doubt that the more senses we can use in being in God's word, the more the Holy Spirit has to work with. So I like to see it. I like to read it. I like to hear it. I like to ingest it in as many senses as I can in going through the word of God. So verse 1, it says, then the high priest said, are these things so? The question that they're asking Stephen is, is what they're saying about what you're saying true? Now, they're accusing him of verse 11, speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. He's blaspheming God. He's blaspheming Moses. Second question, is this true? Verse 13, speaking blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. Why? Because what they're saying, verse 14, we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Mo, uh, which Moses delivered to us. Now, the, the, the fact is, the truth is that Jesus came not to destroy, but to fulfill all of them. And that's exactly what he did. So as Stephen launches into this amazing response, it seems to some like, what's the point? But let me say to you, the truth is that his points are so direct and so convicting that those who are listening to him stoned him to death. That's a powerful sermon. Some have called this Stephen's defense, but if so, Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, did a very poor job of defending himself. It got him killed. I would rather look at this as the Spirit's offense, and that is the gospel. The truth of God marching on. And Stephen is declaring the truth. So what they heard Stephen saying was deeply convicting and violently resisted by those who didn't want to hear. Look at verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Verse 57. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears. You know how that is when you don't want to hear someone. Just, eh. They stopped their ears 
and ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Listen, we know that the gospel is the power of the Spirit of God on the offense. The gates of hell will not prevail against the gospel. Him seeking the Holy Spirit through the gospel, seeking to rescue souls from the devil, from sin, death, and hell. For many, Jesus will be a very offensive thing because they refuse to acknowledge the truth that he lived and that he spoke. So when you start declaring these things, it does rile up many people. It offends them. But listen to what Jesus said. Matthew 7, 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the way, is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. I would rather be on the narrow path that leads to life than on the broad path that leads to destruction. This is what Jesus said. He also said, I am the way, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, mark that, emphatic, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's narrow. It's one, but it's also very clear. I'm not trying to decide what guru am I supposed to be following. There's one person who has declared these things. He lived them out. He died and rose again from the dead to forever establish he is who he claimed to be. What he spoke, I am the way, the truth, is true. We can bank on it. We can hang our, our lives on him because he died for us that our sins might be removed. And as we're going to talk about this morning in these three, three factors of faith, in the grace of God, in the goodness of God, in the power of God to deliver, and in the person of Jesus Christ to save. Can I hear an amen? That's what we, the factors in our faith that are essential to understanding. Yes, it is offensive, but it's right. It's true. Acts 4.12, nor is there salvation in any other... For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name. It's Jesus of Nazareth. He's the one. So, my dear fellow Christians, and I believe this is probably central to what I think is on the Lord's heart for us as believers in this room this morning. It is time that we stop making a way out for ourselves and start getting out and sowing the seed of the gospel. Whether it's received or rejected, it is the only means by which souls will be saved. It's the truth. One thing is certain. The eternal destiny of that soul that God used you to bring to him will outlive you forever. That's the truth. A little more on this, in this thought on my heart. Matthew 10, verse 27. Therefore, Jesus said... Do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That is God. Are not, sparrows sold for a cop are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. He said, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. In other words, should your life 
be martyred for the sake of Christ. Know this, it doesn't mean that God doesn't care about you. It means just the opposite. He's used you. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And we as believers, it might mean some radical responses from people. And so, therefore, Jesus said, whoever confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father. That's how critical it is that they hear and respond to Jesus. He said this, he goes on, Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life will find it. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now those are very clear, emphatic words from Jesus saying, preach the gospel. Tell people. Share it. Because it's that critical to their lives. So, as with every time we get together, Saturday night and Sunday, our services here, I will give an opportunity for you who don't know Jesus yet to find Jesus as your Savior this morning. Why? Why would I do that? Because there is a devil who hates you. He knows that hell is a real place and wants you to spend it forever there with him. Why would we preach the gospel? Because you are a sinner and you need God's forgiveness because you will die. But you can know that when you do die, you will be in heaven for all eternity. The gospel is God's good news that Jesus lived, died, rose again. He conquered sin, death, and hell once for all. By God's grace, goodness, and power, you can be forgiven, made new, And know that you have eternal life. But you must choose. You must decide for yourself. God's not going to force a relationship with him on you. But he offers it to you freely by his grace, his goodness, and his power to deliver you. You must choose. There are a whole lot of people in this room who are praying that you will make your decision to follow Jesus after this service today. And we will be praying for that as I give that opportunity. Stephen now recounts the history of their fathers resisting the Holy Spirit. He drives home the point with our fathers. Look at what they did all the way through the history of our nation. Their resistance to those who spoke to them the truth from God. He ends with these hard but true words. Look at them in verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your, as your fathers did, so do you. Now, that doesn't seem to me like be a very good thing to say to someone. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You're just like them. And he's going to give the history now recounting that. A history of resisting the Holy Spirit. It wasn't deadly for Stephen. He didn't. It was deadly for them if they continued. And thus now he goes through this history of Israel. Tremendous summary. So he begins with Abraham. Abraham lived by faith in the grace of God. Verses 1 through 8. Verse 2. Acts chapter 7. And he said, brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. 
and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. God appeared to Abraham in grace. Abram, his name was at that point, not the person we would think God would choose to start a nation. Abram came out of an idolatrous pagan ancestry and history. His father, Joshua 24, which is another great chapter if you want to read a little bit. His father, Terah, served other gods. Abraham was 75 years old when God appeared to him. Now, you might think, well, that's old. No, that was midlife crisis right there. He, was, he lived to be 175. Verse 4, Acts 7. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even to set his foot on. But even when Abram had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that, that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. God appeared to him in grace. God promised him in grace. Genesis chapter 12, if you want to flip there or, or you know, however you do that on your tablet. Genesis 12, just to read what God did when he appeared, what he said to him. Genesis 12, 1, which is a turning point in the book of Genesis. Now we're getting into this whole plan that God had through Abraham. So Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now notice, but God spoke in this way. He promised him, Acts chapter 7 and verse 5, promised to give him this possession, but... The but there says, right from the get-go, God is promising Abram something he will not see in his lifetime. But Abram's faith in the grace of God would outlive him for all of every lifetime. The father of our faith. He is the father of us all. That is, of those who are in relationship with God through trusting in his grace, his promises to us, having nothing to do with who we are but who he is. God chose Abram simply because he chose Abraham. Do I understand that? No, but God can do what he wants to do. Can you hear an amen? He chose him by grace. Simply that. Listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, he chose us by grace. Do I understand that? No, the more I know about my heart, the less I understand that. But I do know this. He promised by his grace that I can know him. God appeared to him, Abraham. He spoke to him. He promised him, only explained by the grace of God. Verse 8, Acts 7. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and to Abraham, be, and Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. Then God gave him this covenant of circumcision. Then God gave him descendants, Isaac, Jacob, the twelve patriarchs, through whom he would be forwarding his plan and promises. Tremendous. You see, grace marked Abram's faith in God from the very first appearance. 
And may I say to you, it's no different for us. Abraham, his name was Abram, which means high father. God changed his name to Abraham, which means the father of a multitude. Sarai, his wife, her name Sarai means my princess. Sarah means mother of nations. That's God's promise to Abraham. Genesis 15, if you want to turn there, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body shall be your heir. Verse 5, Genesis 15. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heavens and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And here's the key passage for Abraham's faith in God. Abraham believed in the Lord, and the Lord accounted it to him for righteousness. What did Abraham do? He just believed God's promises. That's all he did. He believed God and God said, you're in right relationship with me because you believe my promises. And all through Abraham's life and through the commentary yet in the Bible, that's the phrase. Abraham believed God and he accounted it to him for righteousness. In other words, Abraham didn't do anything to deserve it. He didn't do anything to work for it. God promised him. Why? We don't know, but he did. He chose him. He called him. He promised him. Abraham believed it and God said, it's all yours. It's no different for us. Abraham simply believed what God promised. Abraham believed and accounted for righteousness. Romans chapter 4, another key chapter. Romans 4, if you turn there or finger there. Romans 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and is accounted to him for righteousness. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. They're not, it's not grace, but debt. In other words, you work, you deserve that, I'll pay you. But it was by grace. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who, look it, justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. I say, yeah. I believe what God did for me through the cross in Jesus Christ. I believed his promises to me, and I was justified before God because of what he accomplished, what I believed, and therefore what he gave to me. It's his righteousness. I say, wow, wow. I'm, I, I'm considering doing a little, uh, an e-group on Romans, and I think we just had one, but Romans is a necessary part of your faith in the grace of God. It's been called the gospel of the grace of God. If you haven't read Romans, you need to read it. If you haven't studied it, you need to study it. It sets so many powerful people free from all this idea that somehow I have to continue to work for the things in my life that God might bless me. No, God blesses me by his grace. We were saved by grace through faith. And on and on it goes. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his grace, he saved us. And oh, I get excited. Notice what he says in Romans 4. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. David sinned wickedly against the Lord. 
as Nathan the prophet busted him, as God, he immediately repented and God forgave him of his sins through his repentance. He didn't work back to God. He believed God. And God, and he said, and wouldn't you say he meant that? Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. In fact, just the opposite, God through faith imputes to us his righteousness. God promised and covenant with Abraham in grace. Romans 4, 16. Go there if you can. Therefore, it is a faith that might be according to grace, that the promise might be sure to all the seed. Who is the seed of Abraham? We are seed of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ. We enter into this whole family covenant that God's given to us by our believing God. And so because of how Abraham himself was justified, it's no different for us. We follow his faith in God. God promised it. He believed it. That settled it in his calling. I got other ones, but we'll move on to the second. How's that? Oh, here's one. Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, in whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. God said to Abraham, through Isaac, the promise, I'm going to give you a, a son, through Sarah, who's 100 years old, and you're past it too, but I'm going to give you a promise, seed, it's going to be Isaac, and through him, your descendants will be called. Through him, the promise that I'm giving to you is going to be fulfilled. So then God says to him, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Now, this is a passage, again, an amazing prophetic picture, passage on God's work for us through his son, Jesus Christ. In Genesis chapter 22, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, verse 4, Genesis 22. Then on the third day, Abraham saw the place afar off. So for three days in the mind of Abraham, his son was dead as he's making his way up to the mountain. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son. He took the fire in his hand and the knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Now, Isaac is 30 years old plus at this time. He's not a little child. He's surrendering and submitting to his father. Where's the sacrifice? Where's the lamb? Abraham said, if you're in, verse, if you're in Genesis 22, mark this carefully, verse 8. Abraham said, my son, God will provide. Now, in my New King James Version, King James got it right. New King James added four. God will provide for himself the lamb. No, take the four out. God will provide himself the lamb. I go, sure. This picture is absolutely mind-blowing. As Abraham's going up with Isaac, in his mind he's dead for three days. God says, offer him up. So he takes him up, and then this is what happens. They came to that place of which God had told him. Abraham built an altar there, placed the wood on the, in order, bound Isaac, his son, laid him on the altar upon the wood. Isaac is surrendering his life into his father's hands, trusting him. Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called 
said, now I know that you fear God. Now I know that you surrendered everything to him. And then he looked, and in the bush was a substitute sacrifice. But what happened, and then he said, on the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. The very place where Isaac, Abraham took Isaac up is the very place where that cross was thrown into the ground and our, our blessed Lord Jesus hung on it. He is the substitute sacrifice for our sins. All by the grace of God. His mercy extended to us and his grace with that. Abraham believing, believed every promise God ever gave him. And do you? Do I? You see, that's what's going to outlive us. What God has said and promises ours through faith in Jesus Christ. Joseph lived by faith in the goodness of God. And you know this, many of you know the story of Joseph, another tremendously prophetic picture of a life lived for God and mirroring, in some ways, Jesus' life lived for us. So verse 9 of Acts 7, the patriarchs came, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. That's the story of his life. And delivered him out of all of his troubles, gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. God was with Joseph for good and for good all the way along. He was despised and rejected by his brothers, the patriarchs. They became envious and jealous of him because he was loved by their father. His brothers came to hate him even more because God gave him dreams. They conspired against him. They ripped off his coat of many colors and would have killed him except Reuben intervened for him. They cast him into a pit. They sold him as a slave to some Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. All this Genesis 37. One might look at Joseph's life and think God has forsaken him. Not so. In fact, when he had no one else, God was with him all along the way. God was with him going down to Egypt, sold as a slave. God was with him as a slave in Egypt, a piece of property, no more. God was with him as prisoner in Egypt, though through no fault of his own. You look at his life, you think, man, how unfair are all these things? Indeed, they were. An elderly man lay in a hospital with his wife of 55 years, sitting at his bedside. Is that you, Ethel, at my side again? He whispered. Yes, dear, she answered. He softly said to her, remember years ago when I was in the veterans' hospital? You were with me then. You were with me when we lost everything in a fire. And Ethel, when we were poor, you stuck with me then too. The man sighed and said, I tell you, Ethel, you are bad luck. <laughs> I love that. You see, it's perspective, amen? It's perspective. God was with him as the governor of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. God was with him when his brothers showed up looking for food. And in this amazing prophetic passion of the Bible, the picture of Joseph, brutally rejected by his brothers, forgiving all that his brothers had done to him. I believe it pictures Jesus' second coming when he will re restore Israel, reconcile the nation to himself, as it says in Zechariah 13, 6. And one will say to him at his second coming, what are, the what are these wounds between your arms? He will answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. 
when the nation Israel realized they killed their Messiah. They crucified him. Joseph's brothers show up. Tremendous story. Joseph recognized them. They didn't recognize him. He's speaking a different language at that point. And Joseph recognized them, and he reflects on the dream that God gave him, that they'd all bow down to him. And so they come, less Benjamin. And there they are, needing food. And Joseph begins to test his brothers, your spies. You came to search out the land. That's what you are, your spies. Now, I want, you need to prove to me that you're not spies. I want to keep one of your brothers. You go back, and I want you to prove by bringing Benjamin. And so they're all distraught. And they're speaking with each other, not knowing that Joseph's understanding them. And they begin to say, I told you we shouldn't have done that to him, throw him in the pit and send him to eat. I know, I mean, they had been living with that guilt for years. So there they go, back to their land. And their father Jacob hears the story and goes, all things are against me. They say, we got to go back and get food, but we got to bring Benjamin. You're not bringing Benjamin. Look what happened to Joseph. You're, there's no way you bring, well, if we don't, we're not going to get food. So they finally, he finally acquiesces. They bring Benjamin back there. And again, Joseph begins to test them. Bring Benjamin out. It's such a fantastic story. Joseph can't hold his composure when he sees Benjamin. He has to escape and wipe himself so they don't know what's going on. And finally, through the interactions with his brothers and sending the cup back and then bringing them back, Joseph sees their repentance as they plead for Benjamin. He sees they've get, they're getting things right, and then he reveals himself to, to them. Now, Jacob had died. When he died, his brothers go, oh, man, he's going to pay us back now. Now, that's what I would do. <laughs> that's what you might want to do. Well, dad's gone, so now we can deal with this issue Well, what you did to me when I was a young boy. And so they're saying, please, please, our father said that, you know, and they just start pleading with Joseph, would you take, don't, don't, don't deal with us that way. Just, no, and, and they're trying to get, and Joseph, oh, 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 wait, 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 wait. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save, if I can, our family. He, his faith was in the goodness of God. All the things that happened, he could see God's plan for his life. And he who they rejected was God sending ahead to save them. Jesus, whom they rejected, is the very one who God sent to save us. Wow. That's just a moving story for me. Moses, verses 20 through, through 50. He lived by faith in the power of God to deliver. Look at verse 20. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in, that, in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. So get this. God delivered Moses when he was a helpless three-month-old baby. He delivered him. They had a plan because Pharaoh said to the, to the maids, throw him into the water. Any, any male child, throw him into the water. So they made a little ark, put it in the river. And I believe looking and hoping that someone would hear the cries and draw that, and that's what Moses means, draw now, draw him out of the water and raise him. So he wasn't dead. And sure enough, 
But even more than sure enough, who came down to the riverbank? Pharaoh's daughter. And Abraham was raised in all the, the uh, he, was, he was into the house, God delivered right into the house of Pharaoh. And there he became a mighty man, as it says in Acts here, of word and deed. He had the best education going in all the world. He was now heir apparent to the throne of Egypt. That's what God, that's what he could have been, could have happened. God delivered right into that palace to raise him up to be the deliverer of his people another 40 years down the road. See, Moses' life was conveyed into, into three 40-year periods, as we see, you see in the book of Acts. Verse 23, when he was 40 years old. And then verse 30, and when 40 years had passed. So you got four 43-40 year segments. The first 40 years of becoming somebody mighty in Egypt. That's what was happening in his first 40 years. After 40 years, it came into his mind. So I don't know what was going on in his heart, but somehow God was ministering to him. He's, a, he's, a, he's, he's part of that Israelite. He was drawn out of the water. Maybe his mom talked to him about that. We don't know. doesn't tell us. But somewhere it came into his mind to go to his brethren. And so he went to them. He thought they'd understand that God raised him up to deliver them, but they didn't understand. So as Moses then delivered, he killed one Egyptian one day, comes back the next day, two Israelites are fighting. He says, why are you fighting with each other, your brothers? And they said, well, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Are you going to kill us like you did that man? And that, Moses being found out, would have been killed by Pharaoh. So he flees. His next 40 years are on the backside of a desert, becoming nobody. Now, you may not like becoming nobody, but let me say to you, one of the traits of Moses was great humility. God humbled him all along the way. He prepared him. So 40 years in Egypt becoming somebody, 40 years in the backside of a desert becoming nobody, and then the, the angel appears to him in the burning bush, and now he's 40 years that God's going to use him to deliver everybody. That's what God did. My friends, that is faith in the power of God to deliver. Was Moses this great Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, no, no, no. By the time God got him at 80 years old, he's going, well, I think he should get somebody else because I stutter. How about getting someone else because I don't want to do it? Eventually, he surrendered his life in humility to God, and God used him. And then you think about what he went through for 40 years in the wilderness. <laughs> he was humbled on many occasions, but he walked humbly with his God. And so Moses delivered them from Egypt. He gave them the law and the tabernacle. He led them through the wilderness. He interceded for them and saved them from sure judgment, not on one occasion, but on few. What was their response? How did they treat him? They rejected him. Who made you a ruler and judge over us? This is Moses, the great Moses. They would not obey him. Verse 39. They rebelled against and they turned back to Egypt. And the thing about this is, this is what happened all the time in the wilderness with Moses. Time and time again. And God continued through Moses to intercede for them and save them, protect them. To the point when Joshua came along, God then actually led them through another man, Joshua, into the promised land. And from Moses to Solomon, God dwelt among them. He gave them the tabernacle. He gave them the temple said, I will dwell among you and you will be my people and I will be your God. Now, if you look at how God de dealt with his people, that would never happen if we were the ones doing it. We would have been done with them a long time ago. But God, because he's a God of grace, because he's a good God, because he has the power to deliver us, 
sent Jesus, Stephen being that. Faith in the person of Jesus Christ, he saves us. That's the culmination of God's plan for all people in all nations to know him and walk with him. And I think how much God put up with me in my life. How many times he should have been done with me. And then I reflect on the grace of God. I think of how he's led me all these years. The things that he's blessed me with. In fact, I'm trying to be much more intentional in my prayer life. Enter his gates with what? Thanksgiving. Someone said counting your blessings is the hardest arithmetic we do. But it's what we must do. And I think of the goodness of God in my life. And we reflect on the goodness of God in your life. And you realize that's what outlives me. Been there all the time. God has not changed. And then I think of the power of God to deliver me, which he did through my faith in Christ. And I come to the cross, and there I bow. Because the person of Jesus Christ died for me, as pictured in Isaac. There, through Jesus Christ, God sent his son to give me, in my life, the power of the gospel. That by believing in him and repenting of my sin, he saved my life. He saved my life. It's fantastic, is it not? See, this is the faith factors that outlive us. God is a God of grace. God is a good God. God is a God who has the power to deliver us. And how do we know that? Because as Stephen is giving up his life, when they heard these things, verse 54... Well, first of all, he said, stiff neck and I'm circumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You'd think a gracious, good, powerful God like that would never be resisted. But you see, that's the travesty of sin in the world. And the, really, the problem is not God. The problem is our hearts. In fact, when the kingdom age comes, 1,000 years of Jesus ruling and reigning on the earth, the Satan is bound for those 1,000 years. Still mortals living on the earth. And after a thousand years, Satan is loosed. And you know what? He raised another army of rebellious people against God. It shows and proves beyond any shadow of doubt the problem is the heart of man. Resisting the goodness and the grace and the power of God. Wanting nothing to do with that. Wanting to do it on our own. And that's the travesty. That's the depths. That's the darkness of why God said the soul that sins shall die. And so he said, when they heard these things, verse 54, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw, and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And as I shared last week, it strikes me every time I read it, Jesus, we know, is seated at the right hand of God. Stephen is being martyred. He's standing to welcome him in. See, that's the faith factor of believing in Jesus Christ. They cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Radical. We're going to get into Saul's life. See, an amazing thing, God still offers his grace, his goodness, his power to deliver, even to the most violently resisting people. But if they turn in repentance and receive Jesus... Well, as we continue to Acts 8, we're going to see in Acts 9, that's exactly what happened to a very violently resistant man named 
Saul of Tarsus. And I believe that Stephen's martyrdom was the, was the craw. <laughs> it was that goad that he couldn't get away from in his mind. And that to me is the grace of God for Saul. That to me is the goodness of God for Saul. That for me is the power of God to deliver Saul himself. That is the per person of Jesus Christ who met him on the roads of Damascus, turned him upside down, inside out, and right side up. And he became a man that God used to write a large part of the New Testament. We have the same testimony, brothers and sisters in the Lord. So can we pray? Because I want to offer through the gospel eternal life to anyone here tonight, today, this morning, who doesn't know Jesus yet. You see, as I shared, there are a lot of people praying that this might be your time to meet Jesus. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So can we bow our heads and pray, my fellow believers? See, Jesus came to die on a cross because your sin needed to be paid for. A just God must punish sin. But God so loves you, he doesn't want you to experience that punishment. So he sent Jesus to take your sentence. He died in your place. The wage of sin is death. He put on Jesus all of your sin, all of your crimes against God. And there, crucified on the cross, was the payment for your sin. That which will keep you from being right with God. And so Jesus, in his death, said, it is finished. The debt is paid in full. So as we're praying, if you don't know Jesus yet, it means that you still are in danger of an eternity apart from God. The most important decision you will ever make is deciding, making that decision to follow Jesus. To know that you have eternal life. To know that when you die, you will go to heaven. And Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. It's your choice. God's not going to force that on you, but God is offering it to you because he loves you. So three First steps, simple steps. First, I'm going to ask you to just raise up your hand. Say, I want to get right with God today, this morning. Secondly, I'm going to ask you to stand up because as we read, Jesus said, if you confess before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. And when you stand in obedience to the gospel, God will wipe away your past. So all the fears, all the excuses, all the things that you've been sort of putting in the way of making that decision, God will wash away. When you stand for him, you will realize you've now done what God's called you to do and he will give you of his Holy Spirit. You will be right with him and you will not look back. That's our prayer. So, number one, to raise up your hand. Secondly, to stand up, acknowledge Jesus. And then I'm going to ask you to walk up to one of these tables on either side. And there, there'll be, there are people there to pray for you. It's just a prayer away. To pray as you pray to God. Repenting of sin, acknowledge your need for forgiveness. Receiving God's forgiveness, receiving Christ as your Savior and Lord, and then being filled with your Holy Spirit and leaving this. We pray every Sunday that if anyone comes here who doesn't know you, they'll leave knowing you. And that's what it takes, your confession of faith in Christ. So as we're praying, just another moment. If you want to get right with God tonight, we want you to, to be this to be your day. So just raise up your hand and keep that up so I can acknowledge you. We're praying. A battle for souls wages in the heavenly realm.
Jesus said that the devil came to rob and kill and destroy. Anyone here? We're praying just another moment. Now, as we sing this last song, I think it would be fitting for us, in light of the message, what I believe God's brought to my heart and ours, that we just stand at some point during this song as believers in the room and say, Lord, I'm going to be more intentional about sharing my faith with other people. Now, that's not complicated. In fact, it's pretty simple. I think we're normal people. We have normal conversations. One of the, one of the ways that I like to do, engage people is ask a simple question. Do you go to church anywhere? It's pretty non-threatening. And the interesting thing is, I, was, I got my hair cut yesterday, as you can tell. Um, or maybe you can't. <laughs> anyway, I've been going to this lady from getting my hair cut for years. And it wasn't until yesterday that I asked her, do you go to church? I, I, it's not threatening. And so she said she doesn't. And so I just began to talk to her about that and said, I think you'd really like our church. We just sing some songs and go through the Bible. And so I'm, she said that she might come with her mom. I said, that'd be fantastic. So it's not complicated as far as sharing faith. But as we're singing this song, just to be intentional, more intentional, more aware, I guess it would be, that when you're going through your, in your spheres of influence where God's put you, he's put you there for a reason. One of those reasons, a main reason, is that through your words and your life, people might come to know Christ. So that would be the reason that we're going to stand today as we're singing. Just, okay, Lord, I'm going to stand, and I'm going to ask you to help me. Now, sometimes, you know, we just need to learn how that happens. So can we do that in this song, and then I'll come up and close in prayer.